0: From Meltem Demers and Jill Carlson, welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a podcast about the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. Each week, we delve into one key theme and examine it through a broader financial, political, and cultural lens to learn from the past, understand the present, and explore the future.
1: All opinions expressed by Meltem Jill, and podcast guests are solely
0: their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Meltem, Jill, and guests may maintain positions in the currencies, assets, and companies discussed in this podcast.
1: This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Meltem, you know what really grinds my gears? Tell me, Jill. We give banks our cash and get basically nothing in exchange. Talk about opportunity cost of capital.
0: You know, it makes me sad every time I look at my bank account. Celsius Network is on a mission to change that. With their super easy mobile app, you can actually earn passive income up to 7% per year in a safe and secure way. Interest is paid out every week and there are no fees or penalties ever.
1: If you head over to Celsius and tell them we sent you, they'll give you $10 bonus in Bitcoin after your first deposit greater than $500. Use code GEARS when signing up or go to Celsius.network slash GEARS for more information. Time to give a shout out to one of our sponsors, Coindesk, the number one media outlet for all things blockchain and crypto, is hosting Consensus, its annual event in New York City. Tickets are on sale now
0: at www.consensus2019.com, and you can save $300 if you use the promo code GEARS300. Ah, uh, another week in crypto land. Um, we're so glad you could be here. So we're just going to do our usual recording, except you'll be in our respective living rooms with us.
1: Yeah, welcome.
0: <laughs> and it's not two in the morning. <laughs> For once. All right. So I want to go back, Jill. The year is 1750, sorry, 750. Are you with me? We're going way back. Way back. Horses, no cars. But it is the golden age of the Silk Road. The original Silk Road. the (laughs) The original, original, original Silk Road. There are Muslim merchants who are traveling this trade route, which spans thousands of miles, and they need a way to finance their growing trade business. After all, if you're a merchant, you go on a long voyage, maybe you travel for a year, you buy goods in an exotic land, and it takes you another year to travel home and sell your goods. Nobody has a bunch of cash lying around to finance this journey. So what these merchants did is they combined the elements of a loan and a partnership to create the Karad, The Karad was an informal agreement between two parties. It eventually became a multilateral agreement, but one party who had capital and the other who wanted to supply their labor and take all of this risk would work together to participate in this venture. And eventually they could even pass these ventures on to their children in the first sort of
1: trust. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So that was the first instance of having this kind of speculative investment vehicle based on a venture, based on a joint venture, right? But it was obviously far from the last. Skip forward. Now we're going to, what, 1100, 1100, right? that's right. The golden age of exploration. Indeed. <laughs> we, of course, are too late to explore the seas, too early to We've explore the galaxies. We've got the, the crypto galaxies. ocean
0: to navigate. But indeed,
1: <laughs> just in time to explore the wonderful world of crypto. But so in 1100, you had all of these Europeans and uh, explorers going out on their ventures across the oceans. And they, too, created this new instrument in order to be able to finance their voyages and their exploration, and also to give people a speculative instrument in order to place bets on on how well these ventures would go. Now this was called the Commenda. And this is interesting because this was the first instance of a passive instrument. Right, so no longer did you have to actually participate and put in some sweat equity into the venture, you could just be sitting at home comfortably back in your town square in Venice holding this instrument and using it to speculate.
0: And what was amazing about it is many of these port cities in Italy became these speculative places where people were actually actively trading their interests in these commendas. Each commenda represented one ship, one voyage. And so if you were a wealthy merchant, you would buy an interest in maybe four or five of these. And as you heard news about these voyages being carried back, you would trade these on this secondary market in the form of a town square. But of course, financial innovation is an ongoing evolution. It never ends. And so we fast forward to 1774, the Dutch, my people, were very enterprising, and they created a new vehicle. The first ever pooled investment vehicle was called Eindracht
1: Macht Macht. Sorry, God bless you. What
0: yes, was that? that's, that's my only chance to use Dutch. And it, the meaning of that was unity creates strength. And what they did is this guy put together a portfolio, 20 classes of assets. It invested in 20 to 25 securities per class, and basically created the first equal-weighted index fund that offered investors exposure to 20 classes of bonds. My favorite. My favorite.
1: Whoa. <laughs> so <laughs> no, the... no Cuban or Puerto Rican bonds, though, no Devonshire. Dominican Republic. Oh God. sorry. <laughs> so the fee on that was 20 basis points um, of the total return. And there was no active management of this instrument, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that there is no manager deciding what bonds we're gonna move in or out of it. For all of you mutual fund people in the room, sorry, no thanks. (laughs) This was one of the first truly passive instruments. So before we talked about how a passive instrument in the first case meant that you no longer had to actually participate in the venture. In this case, it means that the instrument is set. There's 20 classes of bonds in it. And that's it. That's all you get for the duration, for the life of the asset. Now, interestingly, at this time, paper certificates were still custodied by storing them in a chest secured with three locks. And this was one of the key guarantees Mm -hmm. of these instruments, was that these bonds would be securely custodied. Binance, take note.
0: (laughs) So you needed three keys, and effectively, what this was, the first ever trust board. It was the first (laughs) ever multi-sig guaranteed by humans. In this case, um, the managers of this pooled investment vehicle. And so all of these things, what they've led us to is the year 2019, where we're at. So what we're gonna talk about today, the title of this episode is ETF FNO. So hopefully that gives you an indication of where we're going. Obviously, the Bitcoin ETF, we talk about it. People call it the holy grail. Um, people want an ETF, don't want an ETF. Why is everyone so obsessed with ETFs? So we're going to delve into it. And what we're going to go through is what are pooled investment vehicles and why do they exist and how do they work? We've given you some of the history, but let's talk about what's happened in the last 20 years. Funds have grown exponentially, so we'll talk about some of the numbers. We can't talk about ETFs without talking about gold and how the GLD ETF fundamentally changed the market for gold, which had very similarities, uh, very many similarities in terms of accessibility that Bitcoin does. We'll talk about what we think people actually mean when they talk about an ETF, and then we'll talk about what a Bitcoin ETF might actually do, and whether it even matters at all, um, or whether it's actually a Trojan horse to make Bitcoin a highly centralized vehicle for the bankers, so long the bankers, short Bitcoin. (laughs) That's
1: right. You've all been around in the space, at least for a little while now. You've certainly heard the hype around the Bitcoin ETF. This has been one of the most persistent memes of the crypto when space. When ETF. When ETF. Wait, is it on the FUD dice? <laughs> I, it's probably Nick Carter, on the is FUD. is it FUD. on the FUD dice? <laughs> <laughs> when ETF. Um, I remember making a decent chunk of money actually trading on some of the ETF headlines yep. throughout the past history. But so mm-hmm. let's dive in. Why is everyone so excited about the Bitcoin ETF? Before we explore that, we have to first define what an ETF is. Now, you all in the audience here are from Boston, probably a lot of you are working in you know, asset management. You know I see a lot heard? of callers in the room, a lot One of suits. One third of all professionals in Boston have worked at
0: Fidelity at some point in their careers. Wow. So I buy that. Is that, that true? Has, how many people here have worked at
1: Fidelity? Oh, okay, not this audience. Actually, like about a third of the room. You think? That was, yeah, that was not trivial. Th- that's my bust, in fact. So, okay, we're <laughs> going to bore you all to death who've worked at Fidelity and run through just for a second what an ETF is, why it's significant, why it matters. So an ETF is a pooled investment vehicle. And the folks from Fidelity, feel free to give us a shout-out when we get things wrong here. Mm-hmm. An ETF is a pooled investment vehicle, sometimes called a pooled fund. Um, and it's managed by a team of professionals, but importantly, it's not actively managed. It's a lot like that Dutch instrument, what was mm-hmm. it called? Uh, the Eindracht Macht, Macht There we go, God yep. bless you. Um, it's my like Dutch to use, like the only time <laughs> ever that I get to use It's Dutch. a lot like that <laughs> instrument insofar as the underlying assets of it and what it's supposed to be tracking does not change over time as a mutual fund would or as any number of other investment vehicles now some popular examples of a pooled investment vehicle include reits so real estate investment trusts mutual funds as i as as i mentioned and etps but an etf again is slightly different mm-hmm.
0: And I actually got my start trading ETFs. I didn't even really know this was an ETF. I traded this product called Nugget and Dust, right? So those were the ticker symbols. And these were triple levered gold miners in both directions. So Dust was the short. Nugget was the long, but basically what it represented was a basket of gold miner equity, but it was triple levered, meaning if the price of the um, underlying went up 1%, the price of the product went up 3%. So trading this puppy in 2016 when gold prices were going nuts was super fun. Oh my God. Was this you trading it retail? Yeah, retail. I was trading it on Schwab. So clearly, you know, as a trader, you're addicted to dopamine. (laughs) Like a real, I'm a real low life (laughs) Jill. So this was the best asset to trade, but with an ETF basically what you're buying is exposure to an index or strategy. And a lot of plumbing goes into the back end of an ETF that's important, and it's really all about how this stuff gets made. So what's interesting about ETFs is, I can't go out into the market and just make an ETF. You need a bank or broker to act as a middleman. They create shares when people contribute securities to the fund, and they redeem shares when they take the securities out. And it's all of that complexity gets taken out, so the retail investor, all they do, they go to Schwab, they go to Vanguard, they go to Fidelity, they type in the ticker symbol, they click buy, so it's point, click, buy, and they're done. These markets are highly liquid, and the
1: ETF market's huge. It's abstracting a lot, though, what you just said, because as Milton mentioned, there's a lot of plumbing going on behind the scenes here, and that plumbing is kind of a mess, and I would wager that even some of you Fidelity folks in the room don't know all of this. (laughs) So in order to create an ETF, you as the ETF provider have to engage something called an authorized participant, which is a big broker, big financial institution, what have you. That authorized participant goes out into the market and buys up all of the underlying shares or whatever product it is that will underlie that ETF. So if you're trying to create an S&P 500 index ETF that will just track the general market moves of the S&P 500, your AP, your authorized participant is going out and buying a weighted stock basket. Now your AP then gives you as the ETF provider that basket and you in return give the AP what's called a creation unit, which gets priced based on the NAV, so the underlying value, the net asset value of those stocks that your AP is giving you, not based on the market price. Now, what am I saying, what's the point of all of this? If there's ever a large price discrepancy between that underlying basket and the ETF shares, it'll get arbitraged out by these players, often by the APs themselves. So the APs are constantly making this spread between what the basket price is and the ETF, which often trades to the premium because it's more liquid mm-hmm. and there's more demand from retail.
0: And unlike mutual funds, what's amazing about ETFs is they're listed on exchange and you can trade them throughout the day, right? So I wake up this morning, I'm feeling pretty good about gold. I'm gonna go along with some triple levered gold miners right? Because I'm a degenerate. I click buy. Later in the day, I'm feeling bearish. I can sell and I can go short. These things are highly liquid and they're low cost, low fee. They have a really amazing tax efficiency that we'll talk about as well, which is important. A note on
1: liquidity though first. So the ETFs themselves are highly, highly liquid, right? Pretty much across the board. You can buy the most bespoke ETF you can imagine. I think there's an ETF that tracks like Whiskey out of Tennessee, even I want that, and ETF. that's even that is pretty liquid. Yeah, that yeah. sounds good, right? But interestingly, the underlying of the ETF is not necessarily that liquid. It can be highly illiquid. So I remember when I was on the trading desk, one of the most common uh, requests that we would get would come through from these ETF, from these APs, actually, not the ETF provider themselves. Asking for bids or offers in tiny, tiny quantities, in the most like illiquid shit bonds that we weren't <laughs> actually even really trading. Or I making think markets. I own that in my Vanguard portfolio. There's an emerging market bond ETF. Oh you god! Can, I'm pretty sure I own well, that. Well, let Jill. me tell you though, the underlying of it done is well. scary because you can have this semblance of the ETF being super liquid, like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a retail. Mm-hmm. I'm degenerate meltdown, sitting at home day trading this. But then when there are major outflows or inflows in one direction or another, it'll gap because the underlying is not liquid. But what
0: I think is important here is for large part, and this is something that comes up a lot in the asset management industry. So it used to be if you were a retail investor, you would go to your advisor and they would tell you what to buy in the market or you'd be reading, everyone here has probably read Benjamin Graham's Value Investor. You look at 10Ks and financial Mm -hmm. statements and you try to figure out what you should be buying. Well, ETFs are great because you don't have to do anything. Right, You basically get exposure. You don't need active management anymore. You get the benefit of participating in all these different markets. It makes markets. people feel like experts. Too.
1: Oh, 100%. Like, I can have a theme about you know gold yeah. or EM in general, but I don't want to go in and... Like
0: biotech, right? What I say, exactly. I try to buy biotech stocks. I'm really bad at it because I know nothing about biotech. I need to just stick to crypto. So I abstract out someone else picking all the stocks. But here's what's interesting about all of this, right? There are all of these tax advantages. Um, and why people buy ETFs, why institutions buy ETFs, why they participate in ETFs. Typically, if I'm buying and selling in the open market, every time I trade, For example, if I trade Bitcoin, it's a capital gains event. It's a tax event, right? I do my taxes every year. I'm one of the stupid people who pays taxes on my crypto trading Um, because apparently that wasn't a thing and people weren't doing that. And so You're all uh, getting
1: audited. You're all getting (laughs) audited.
0: You should not have come to this (laughs) conference. Bad sign. Um, But, you know, you have 40 pages of documentation supporting all these trades. The great thing about an ETF is the ETF, the manager, can trade as much as they want. I have no tax burden until I sell my ETF. And the only tax I pay is on the, per- the difference on the price I bought it and the mm-hmm. price
1: I sold at. So from an investor perspective, it makes my life really simple. And that's not true of mutual funds. That's not nope. true of any number of these other products that you nope. have an option.
0: So just as these wealthy merchants along the Silk Road and these wealthy Venetians started pooling investment schemes to provide diversification of returns and the ability to spread a risk, today's investors are using ETFs and these pooled products for a variety of reasons. So we talked a little bit about passive exposure, removing Mm -hmm. the active management element. You don't need to be watching CNBC all day. You get economies of scale, reduced expenses,
1: Yep, and you have increased choice, right? There are only so many mutual funds out there because there are only so many fund managers. An ETF, the world is your oyster. Go buy that whiskey ETF,
0: right? <laughs> Long um,
1: whiskey ETF. And diversification, which goes hand in hand with that, right? Right. And I
0: think the ability to access these esoteric or liquid assets is really, really important. So why Until are, you realize they're
1: illiquid. They're very <laughs> illiquid, at the
0: underlying. Yeah. But ETFs are a really relatively new thing, right? In less Brand than new, 25 yeah. years, ETFs have gone from being this really experimental, tiny new product to being the most popular investment vehicle, not just with retail investors, but also with institutional investors. And now the race for ETFs is massive. Many brokerages offer their um, retail investors free trading in their proprietary ETFs, right? So if you can trade for free, I get to accrue more AUM because I have my customers only buying my products. ETFs compete on fees, and in fact, Fidelity, I believe, has a fund now that charges no fees. There are a bunch of funds that are rolling
1: out really low fees. Which is insane when you hear that, right? It's like, why would they not charge fees on these products, but it's all about AUM. I'm
0: an asset manager. It's all about AUM. Accruing AUM, and this is why it matters, aggregating positions as an AP or a manager gives you control. Life is about control and power, particularly when it comes to markets. And I sound like a crazy person. Something to talk
1: about with our therapists afterwards. Uh,
0: but it also matters a lot in Bitcoin, and we'll talk about why. Totally. And this is something people don't appreciate. Owning 20 to 30 percent of a stock or in a liquid instrument or any type of you asset. You own the market. You own You're the market. Control, you yeah. decide what happens. It's your world and everyone else is living Until it. you go to sell. Until right. you try to sell. So let's size ETFs. It's A massive market, $4 trillion in the U.S., right? So we talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin today's global market cap is $100 billion. ETFs are $4 trillion market. The biggest ETFs today are primarily S&P 500 ETFs. So they track the 500 largest, most liquid stocks in the U.S., but we also have total stock market Mm -hmm. ETFs, emerging market debt, emerging market equity, and even these esoteric ETFs like gold. So let's talk about gold.
1: So yeah, gold, you probably all heard of it. You probably all know someone who owns it if you don't own it yourself, but many of you, I'm sure, do. GLD, right? This is the Spider Gold ETF, which is managed and marketed by State Street. We had to give State Street a shout yeah, out. Yeah, Boston, a lot about State Fidelity. Street. You got
0: Fidelity and State who, who Street? Who here
1: is from State Street? You got any State Streeters? No, they're oh. all blockchain, not Bitcoin people, right? Uh, yeah, No, oh, we're we got gonna one. We got one, we're yeah. com- There's hope. <laughs> um, But so, for a few years anyway, GLD was the second largest exchange-traded fund in the world, and for a short period it was the largest as gold was blowing up, as you mentioned. So the fund allows individuals to track gold bullion prices, and the idea behind its appeal is that the gold fund could be cheaper than the cost of shipping and storing and insuring actual physical Have you ever bought a bar of gold? I haven't, I bought gold coins. You bought
0: gold coins? Yeah,
1: they're huge in Turkey
0: where I'm from. People don't buy ETFs, this is a very America thing. Um, most people in the world like holding physical gold because you control it, right? But if you're an investor and you're like, hey, I want to add some gold exposure today, take some off tomorrow, the idea of this product, it only costs 40 basis points per year. It's pretty cheap to have someone manage and store the gold for you. Each share represents an ounce of gold, like that's, or a tenth of an ounce, sorry. Yeah. That's pretty attractive, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. Um, and so why are we talking about gold here? There are a lot of parallels that we'll get into around gold versus Bitcoin. We're certainly not the first to draw this parallel.
0: (laughs) I think there's even a whole campaign around drop gold from a certain Bitcoin uh, ETF manager.
1: (laughs) So the reason why the gold ETF matters is this. So before the gold ETF came along, the price per ounce of gold was $332. Keep that number in your head at the peak of gold mania it reached $1600 and investing in gold was fairly inaccessible to retail investors it, it's popularized certainly outside of the united states and other parts mm-hmm. of the world india is one of the biggest gold markets in the world and a lot of that actually just happens actually, in the germany form of is jewelry. as well
0: germans really like the idea
1: of owning physical gold well, which is surprising if you've experienced hyperinflation then it makes a lot of sense right and so As Meltem said, buying coins or gold bars, there's a huge limit to who can access that market, and suddenly the gold ETF opens the floodgates on that. And so again, we're far from the first people to make the comparison between the Bitcoin Mm -hmm. ETF and the gold ETF. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are some missing pieces that we haven't quite considered. Right, and it's again, it's about control, right? So here's something to consider.
0: Gold ETFs, the amount of gold they hold, rivals bank holding of gold. So there are only three places where more gold is stored than in these gold ETFs. They are the United States government, the German government, and the IMF, or the International Monetary Fund. After those three, gold ETFs hold the most gold in the world. It's a natural aggregation point, and all of this gold is stored primarily in London, in the gold vault there, but in vaults around the world that are secured by third-party custodians. And so this creates a lot of really interesting problems. All of a sudden, you've given retail investors this ability to hold gold. Theoretically, you could take your gold certificate, your GLD certificate, go somewhere and redeem it
1: for a physical piece of gold. Well, you can ask your ETF provider to call to the authorized purchase yeah, But yeah.
0: again, there isn't a lot of transparency around whether these actual certificates are backed one-to-one by gold bars. There have been a lot of issues. And actually, there are a number of blockchain projects that are working on making the tracking of gold in these ETFs right. and other products more transparent. Notably, the IEX guys. Tradewind. Yeah. Tradewind markets, yep, this is what they're doing now. But the largest source of demand for gold is still pure physical because people view gold as a safe haven asset. And so they don't want to own it in this construction that is managed by a bank.
1: Exactly. And so that there, you know, we just mentioned a few times how in places like India, Germany, Turkey, wherever it is, there is still demand for gold bars. And people are willing to go above and beyond to pay the price of transporting it, securing it, themselves, in some Mm -hmm. cases, insuring it. And they would prefer to do that versus having an ETF, which is subject to the same kind of financial foibles that any, any fiat currency would be. So here's where it gets interesting to me,
0: right? A lot of people think this gold ETF just magically appeared. It didn't. The World Gold Council, which was a membership organization created by the world's gold miners, has been actively working on promoting gold as an asset class. They were the ones who partnered with State Street to create this gold ETF, GLD, and they're now actually working on a new ETF. It was launched two years ago, also with State Street, where each share represents not one-tenth of an ounce, which is pretty expensive, it's $160, but one-one-hundredth of an ounce, 16 bucks pretty accessible to mom and pop, now anyone can buy gold.
1: It's a little bit like, uh, oh, we should denominate Bitcoin in sats, In sats, exactly. You make it cheaper, you make it more accessible.
0: But we've been chasing this idea of a Bitcoin ETF for a long time. So we've given you this background on pooled investment products, how they came about, the gold ETF, and how it created a more liquid, more robust market for gold, now a $7 trillion asset class. $3 trillion of that is traded per year. Let's talk about why everyone's obsessed with a Bitcoin ETF and why I'm an F on an ETF. I think you differ. We're going to argue. Yeah. Let's, let's have a debate.
1: Okay. Should debate. I be crypto grandma right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Please. So
0: I'm crypto grandma. This is my. Tell thing. us a tale. <laughs> Let me tell you. So uh, the first Bitcoin attempt to create a Bitcoin ETF was GBTC. It was a trust company, um, and what it does is it takes in Bitcoin, turns it into GBTC shares, and after a one-year lockup, these shares are liquid. Today, they're traded on the OTCQX, and what people don't realize is 1.1% of all Bitcoin that have ever been mined are in this trust today, and the trust is not redeemable. Wait, sorry,
1: 1.1%? Of
0: all Bitcoin ever mined are in this trust. That's a lot, right? So, like, everyone talks about decentralization down with the banks. Like, you are creating the largest bank in the world right now by putting your Bitcoin into this vehicle. It's like very uh, illogical. Then the Bitcoin IRA came out, totally different construction. Most notably, ARK Invest, which was an ETF manager, added GBTC to one of its portfolios. It became the best-performing ETF, I think, of 2017 when Bitcoin went through its run. And since then, we've had a number of ETF proposals that are trying to bring a Bitcoin ETF to the U.S. market. VanEck partnered with SolidX, Gemini is working on it, Direction, Granite Shares, and ProShares, which are all traditional ETF managers, have done it. Bitwise is working. This is why there's
1: a headline every week that the ETF ETF, is being shot down,
0: right? So my company, CoinShares, we're in Europe. I won't talk about what we do, but we already have a liquid product in the market. It's traded on the NASDAQ, but it's not a trust. It's an ETN, and it's redeemable, meaning shares are created and redeemed, which is a little bit different. But let's just say it's a very big market, very
1: big. So, okay, let's get into this then. Time. The Bitcoin ETF.
0: This is gonna grind my gears. This annoys <laughs> the shit out of me because it's so terrible, and everyone talks about Bitcoin ETFs like they're so amazing, and I'm like, literally, so, you cannot say Bitcoin, decentralized, self-sovereignty, freedom, and Bitcoin ETF in the same breath. It's they're fundamentally
1: I, opposed. I, I'm gonna disagree here okay. because I don't actually have a huge issue with a B, B, Bitcoin ETF coming into existence. I think, in a way, that could be a good thing in terms of providing more liquidity to the market, providing more legitimacy to the market, bringing in some more players. My big thing with this, though, is that, look, what are ETFs really good at? What have ETFs revolutionized for people over the last 25 years since they've existed? They have made traditionally institutional-only assets available to the retail market. Now what do we have with crypto? We it's have the a retail market. Problem. <laughs> we have a it's retail the opposite market problem. We yes. have a retail market that needs to bring in institutional players, that needs to get legitimate custodians involved, that needs to have more transparency around price and volumes, that needs to have better regulated exchanges involved. We need more institutional players, not more retail players. And so to me, where I kind of turn over the table on the whole thing is (laughs) Should we flip? Is this table flippable? Let's not, let's not. (laughs) Flipping tables, (laughs) woo! But where I turn over the table on the whole thing, seriously, is like, okay, it's it's all very exciting, a Bitcoin ETF, but that's not going to bring in more retail players because those who want in have already opened a Coinbase account. Sure, but I think the the big issue I have, right, if we think
0: about what Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is friendly to retail, right? And that's the whole point of Bitcoin. It's open source software that creates a value transfer network. It creates a network where money becomes as easy as communication. That's the whole effing point. That's why we're here, folks. That's like, (laughs) look at all of us here. An ETF, basically what you're doing is you're gonna take Bitcoin, right, which is all about free speech money, censorship resistance, providing people an alternative option to fiat and centralized government control. So you're gonna take this great asset and you're gonna shove it into this regulated, highly controlled product wrapper, which is an ETF, and then you're gonna package it up and distribute it through all of these banks to a broader audience. So basically what you're doing is you're taking this idea of something that is decentralized, owned by investors, that people can custody themselves, and you're shoving it into a a vault and distributing it. That's
1: insane. You could say the same thing about the gold market, though. Yeah, but I don't work in gold, I work in Bitcoin. (laughs) I don't give a shit about (laughs) gold. (laughs) gold. But the whole point of us telling that story around gold, right, is that Gold, for those folks in Turkey or Germany or India or wherever it is, it's no less valuable as a financial instrument, as a store of value. Okay, but gold could never be bought on an exchange.
0: Today, you can buy Bitcoin and put it in a digital wallet on your phone and walk around with it. I couldn't do that with 30 pounds of gold. I can do that with Bitcoin. So is is the point then that it's just... It, it doesn't matter either way I just because think you seem
1: very negative. It's very
0: antithetical, right? So let's talk, so we did some research at CoinShares on where Bitcoin is held today. And it might not surprise you to know that according to our numbers, which we've published publicly and asked for input on, over 16% of, every, of all Bitcoins, so 16% of every Bitcoin one six, ever mined, 16, 16 yeah. one six is held by third-party custodian. 5% of this is in Coinbase custody. Another 5% is in Zappo, 1% is in the Grayscale product, which is also custody by How Zappo. How much was in
1: Binance until last night?
0: Binance had 0.03% of Bitcoin that was hacked last night. And at 0.03%, we're already talking about reorging blocks. So Zappo alone, right, and you can look at the numbers. Zappo alone has 7% of all of the world's Bitcoin in it today. So
1: what happens? What happens if Zappo gets hacked, Jill? But then is your issue with Zappo or with the ETF providers? It's with both. There's also, it's worth pointing out the differentiation, right, that Zappo is cold storage. What happened last night with Binance, that was in the hot wallet. Right, and they were storing keys, passing keys around on Skype, which so clearly is problematic. There's, there's sort of a likelihood thing going on there, but again, I come back to the gold parallel where you could say the same thing for gold, right, and it's no less useful for all of these things. But we that spend we're
0: billions about. of dollars securing gold, right? We have these vaults, and arguably Zappo is building the equivalent of a gold vault, but mm-hmm. with Bitcoin. The issue I have is I have this problem, right? I had my Bitcoin in Zappo. Zappo said, oh, we can't verify your identity, so you can't move your Bitcoin out of our vaults.
1: Should not your keys, data. not your
0: Bitcoin, right? This is the whole point. This is why I use Casa now to manage my Bitcoin.
1: I'm an investor, so obviously I've skinned the game there. But Do you think that's reasonable, though, to ask every single person who wants to be involved in crypto, trade crypto, hold crypto, to hold their own keys? It's I do. I, I, I hope everyone can. But this I hope is about that we creating get to that behavioral change, right? I hope that we get to a point with user experience where everyone can. But I'm also okay if we don't. To me, the point is, the
0: key to making Bitcoin more accessible isn't shoving it into this 30-year-old product construction, but creating a new product wrapper, right? So what is the fundamental problem we're trying to solve? In my view, there are not that many people out there who are dying to own Bitcoin who can't buy it today. As we've talked about, it's very accessible to retail, but it's not accessible to institutions. My whole issue is, if what we're doing, if what we're really excited about, fidelity, custody backed, right? Uh, Bitcoin ETF. All of the things we talk about being most excited about, we're like down with the banks, long Bitcoin. All of the shit we're most excited about is making Bitcoin banks and centralizing control over Bitcoin and making it regulated. We are fundamentally doing all of the things that make bitcoin just like everything else we have like what is the value
1: proposition that I, I want to switch gears from ETFs for a moment it's still on the same general topic here of the financialization of bitcoin but something i always think about with this is the bitcoin futures yes which are not physically settled and in this case physically settled would mean settled to the bitcoin blockchain and the irony of that when we think about all of the projects out there that are working on enterprise blockchain solutions to settle using a blockchain to settle securities traditional securities held at the DTCC to settle those with the blockchain and yet the one sort of blockchainy financial product we have out there the bitcoin futures bitcoin. <laughs> we're not settling it using the damn blockchain it's so to me to me yeah. I, i'll come back around to you on this of like there is a great irony here of what we all like to get up on our respective soapboxes. that's right. <laughs> and say we're trying to do with this technology, whether that's the enterprise blockchain folks, whether that's the crypto as a tool of freedom folks, whatever it is, when we start to talk about the financialization of it, we have to look ourselves hard in the mirror yeah. and be honest about, okay, who's what's really going on here? Who's benefiting? Is it... Is it benefiting the individual, which is supposed to be the sort of cypherpunk dream of Bitcoin, or is it actually benefiting you know, the authorized participants and the, and ETF, the ETF providers? Managers, and, right, and the and banks so and the yeah. custodians.
0: And I think that the hard part for me is. In creating this new asset class and in pushing for everything in this asset class to look exactly the way it does in legacy assets, we're creating the most perfect choke point for regulators to come after. If we end up with a situation where 30 or 40% of all of the world's Bitcoin is custodied by centralized regulated entities, Nobody's ever going to even have to go down to the retail level because retail will have voluntarily given all their Bitcoins to these regulated entities and all you have to do is apply pressure. Those executives aren't going to risk going to jail in order to keep Bitcoin accessible. Like this is to me the great the great irony. And again, it's not a criticism because this is a fundamental conflict. It is
1: the conflict of Bitcoin and
0: institutionalizing or financializing
1: Bitcoin. And this relates to something very timely, which we've mentioned a few times already, which is the Binance hack, right? Yeah. And so I think that if I'm understanding correctly, your big issue with the ETFs is these central points of control, these honeypots. Mm-hmm. And they're not just honeypots in terms of being open to hacks, but if any of you were following along last night, I'm sure that you saw, I'm sure most of you were following along last night, I'm sure that you saw that there was conversation being had around a potential quote unquote rollback of the Bitcoin blockchain to try to reverse the hack, right? now. CZ apparently got on the phone with like Jeremy Rubin, James Presswick, like, some it's, other developers. It was developers. so random. It, the whole thing so was random. very strange to me, and it felt very like random. there was this okay. There's suddenly like this cabal of people trying to decide the future of the Bitcoin blockchain. I, honestly, when I first read, I think it was Jeremy Rubin, Bitcoin core developer, who tweeted about this possibility. I figured he was just joking right to be honest he's usually joking he he may have been joking I suspect but regardless the very fact that this conversation was happening I think serves to demonstrate both a crucial point about Bitcoin itself Bitcoin the technology as much as we might rail against this idea it's not totally out of the question from a technical perspective that this could happen, Mm -hmm. right? That with a big enough size and with a big enough sort of shelling point and with enough buy-in around it, there could be a rollback that happened based on a hack. You can incentivize miners the right way, so on and so forth. It is possible. Nick Carter is going to start telling me that I have to get off stage now, probably. Uh, but but I think the other
0: piece here is, right, we have to, to me, the reason I'm excited about Bitcoin is we're teaching people a new behavior. And this is the most important thing to me. The whole point of owning a Bitcoin is becoming responsible for your own funds for your own coins. That's something people have never done. Everything they have well, done over the last hundred nothing years- that's something our
1: generation has never done.
0: No, that's something our generation's never done, right? My grandma, when she passed away, we cleaned out her house, there was gold everywhere. Right. My grandma knows how to do this. My grandma also lived in a village in Turkey with no ATM, with no banks nearby. (laughs) She never trusted institutions. That's the world she grew up in. But in our world, I don't even have, you know what I realized the other day? I have no valuable assets in my house. If I had to flee today, the only thing I have is a ledger. Mm right, which has like my go bag ledger, but I had in your no, sock drawer, right? Yeah, but I have
1: no. That's where have, you all keep it, I know. I have,
0: I have a safe, um, it's only a deterrent because it's easy to hack. The Amazon <laughs> reviews are not impressive. But look, at the end of the day, this is the fundamental problem, right? We have this new way of securing an asset, but it inherently contradicts everything we've been taught in the Western world. So how do we teach an entire generation of people new behavior? This is why Bitcoin adoption has been so hard. Looking at Abra, looking at Shapeshift, looking at platforms that have tried to looking pass... at decentralized exchanges, right? Yeah. Companies that have tried to pass custody and ultimately responsibility back
1: to the user haven't taken off because people don't want to be responsible. There are so many folks in crypto too <laughs> who <laughs> will sort of stand up again on the soapboxes and say, "Yeah, not your keys, not your crypto." You all have money on Coinbase. You do, yeah. Or Gemini, like I, I don't care. You all have money on exchange somewhere in some amount. So my question is, and this is where to me it gets
0: interesting, right? So really when we talk about a Bitcoin ETF, what people are talking about is how do we bring the next trillion dollars into Bitcoin? How do we onboard the next billion? <laughs> that implies hodlers? that there's
1: a trillion dollars in crypto already, <laughs> there's um, not.
0: But the All of these HODLers, right, how do we create a billion new HODLers around the world who want to hold Bitcoin? And so to me the question is,
1: okay,
0: how do we make Bitcoin accessible and investable without destroying the value proposition? This to me is the question because people still want to own physical gold. People need to want to own their own Bitcoin, their own keys, like this is the question.
1: People can do whatever they want with it. If they want to hold it in a third-party custodian, that's fine, but they should know the risks. And one of the risks, as you're outlining, around ETFs and the financialization of this stuff is the centralization of control.
0: But people haven't taken responsibility for their own risk. You look at what happened with Ethereum DAO. People got billed out. The chain got rolled back. It's Ethereum, not Bitcoin. But it also happens with Bitcoin, right? Look at Bitfinex. Bitfinex got hacked. The biggest hack ever all of the people on bitfinex were made whole look at what binance is doing last night was amazing to me is one of these exchanges gets hacked and people's response is oh it's okay the Seifu fund will cover our losses like am i taking crazy pills that Welcome the fact to crypto. that yes, you, you somehow didn't
1: lose money makes this fundamentally not a problem like this is a huge problem so we're going to we're going to have to wrap up here in the next couple of minutes but i think that the big questions that we want to leave everyone with today are what is any of this actually good for besides speculation? But why? Because (laughs) the ETF fundamentally is about speculation and that might be great, right? That's good for increasing the liquidity of the market, that's good for lining all of our pockets, whatever you want, fine. But do it synthetically. You don't need to hold physical Bitcoin to
0: speculate. Create a synthetic instrument that gives people exposure and have some institution like, manage the underlying collateral but don't lock up bitcoin in a centralized place where you cannot access it like in coinbase like in your little app or whatever shit wallet you use on your phone that's custodial and then tell yourself oh i own bitcoin no you don't you don't
1: own your bitcoin you don't own shit so the big question here is what is it all about are we focused on the right things all of the hype around the etfs what is it all good for fine it's good for speculation But at the end of the day, that's not actually bringing more money into crypto, that's not bringing new participants into crypto, and it's not making it easier to use crypto for what it's actually uniquely good for. Right, And in fact, it might be a risk. So
0: my, I guess my takeaway, right, long Bitcoin short, short the bankers, it's not a real thing, right? <laughs> By being long Bitcoin and then crying for regulation and saying, oh, someone please make me qualified custodian. Like, you are asking for bankers to come in and institutionalize Bitcoin. And that's fine, I am not against that, I'm a regulated asset manager, we do that in our business, that's fine. But that is not the point of Bitcoin. The reason we get together and we come to these events, we get on these stages, we have these philosophical conversations about how amazing Bitcoin is and we're unlocking all of this new potential and free speech money and we talk about Venezuela, another thing that just really grinds my gears. By sitting in these rooms and creating Bitcoin ETFs, we're doing the opposite of what we set out to do. And that's fine, but let's at least be aware of the contradiction and do things that actively empower people to do the thing that we all came here for. I think. <laughs> long Bitcoin, long the bankers? where we're going. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the takeaway. Well, we'll anyways, hopefully you. you've enjoyed this. This is what we do once a week. We used to do this it. This is literally um, what we do. We used to do it on our couches while drinking wine yeah. on the phone, and now we do it with microphones. So uh, really nice to meet you all. Thanks for giving us 45 minutes of your time to be live on the iTunes next week. <laughs> long Bitcoin, long
1: Hey, this is Jill and Melton. Thanks for joining us for another week of What Grinds My Gears. We love hearing from you, so please hit us up on Twitter, send us feedback, join the conversation. Follow us on Medium at What Grinds My Gears, where we share a summary of each week's episode, references, reading materials, and of course, memes. Thanks again to our
0: sponsors this week, Celsius Network. As a reminder, head over to Celsius and use the code GEARS when signing up to get free Bitcoin when you deposit more than $500. All right, gang, one final reminder to check out Consensus Coindesk's annual event. Here's what you can expect.
1: You'll hear news and emerging trends from trailblazers like Niall Ferguson, Christine Moy, and yours truly.
0: You can get involved in a two-day hackathon at Microsoft's tech center where hundreds of developers will compete for $30,000 in cash prizes.
1: And you can network with developers, founders, regulators, investors, and more.
0: And us. So get your tickets today since last year's event sold out. Just go to consensus2019.com and don't forget to use Gears 300 so they know we sent you. Our episodes go live every Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And if you're a crazy person like us, make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode and get it in time for your morning commute. Share it with your friends or better yet, share it with your enemies. Thank you so much for listening. We love you and we'll see you next time for What Grinds My Gears.